Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for October 1st, 2023. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, tonight uh, we're excited about our guest. We booked him several weeks ago, and there was plenty to discuss, and there still is, but um, it it just was very uh, coincidental in a good way because of the sad passing of Senator Dianne Feinstein that we will have a Californian that actually voted um, with Dianne Feinstein on the ballot for many years, uh, Steve Singizer, to come on the show and talk about her, but um, obviously her being such a a political giant for the past, um, well, I guess in, in politics in general now since the 70s, but in, on the national stage since the early 90s, uh, the longest-serving woman senator in American history, the oldest member of the Senate at 90 years old when she passed away midweek, um, just a very sad passing. And I think we've talked about this a few weeks ago, and I mentioned that while maybe she served one term too long or or a little bit, people should not use that to negate her legacy, which was incredible as San Francisco mayor being thrust into that job in such a, um, you know, dramatic and tragic way. And then serving now in the U.S. Senate for um, parts of four decades. Uh, Catherine, your thoughts on the life and legacy of Dianne Feinstein? Well, it's certainly a terrible loss for the country and for her family and the people who um, loved her. Um, And while, you know, she did struggle these last, I guess it's been about a year, um, you can't, we can't deny the impact she had on the Senate as well as on the many uh, candidates, specifically women who she mentored over the years. So, uh, Rest in peace. Yes, Tim, your thoughts on Diane Feinstein's career? Well, she was a, a giant in in a, in a lot of ways. You you mentioned the the things that she done, uh, the bringing bringing women into national politics in a huge way. She was at the forefront of of the year of the woman. In 1992, I'll never forget her and Barbara Boxer standing together on various stages and stuff. And she uh, she did so much good work in the Senate. Uh, she took over the city of, California, uh, of uh, San Francisco to a very sad time with, with those two assassinations out there and just done a, a marvelous job. Um, she uh, she will go down in history as 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 one of the greats uh, in the U.S. Senate. Uh, I don't need to preach her there. Her 
her legacy speaks for itself, David. Yes, and we'll talk more about it when Steve comes on the air. And, of course, there are political implications, which we'll discuss with Steve and then may unfold in future weeks, and we'll discuss that as well. But until then, we're going to get back to the um, political topics of the week and one that we talked about last week, which really didn't have a lot done early in the week, but things kind of closed in uh, over the weekend. Just yesterday was the um, – the budget. Uh, the but we didn't have a budget. We were in the final hours before you could get a budget. The Senate had approved a budget that was very workable, that um, I guess only has a 45-day time period. Um, Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy um, he put up another budget that you know wouldn't pass because uh, some of the right-wing members would not vote for it again. And then he ended up cutting a deal with Democrats um, where, uh, I guess, all but maybe one Democrat voted for it. A good number of the more moderate to not wacko conservative Republicans voted for it and had a, had enough votes to pass. But I think it still had 90 no votes. So um, I guess maybe 89 of those 90 no votes were Republicans. Um, so, you know, pretty decent, you know piece of their caucus didn't even vote for this budget to keep the government open, but it appears this is going to happen, and it's going to be another 45-day period. So around Thanksgiving, this budget deal ends, so we kind of kick the can down the road, and if you're someone that depends on government services for your livelihood or your sustaining your livelihood or what have you, this was critical. So, I mean, that's where you have to be glad that it happened, although we really didn't fix this thing long-term, did we, Catherine? No, it's so ridiculous uh, to do these 45, these, you know, continuing resolutions. It's very frustrating for, uh, like you said, for people who depend on government, which is most of us in some case, in, in many cases. I mean, we all want the, you know, food we all want the FDA working. We all want the CDC working. All these things are, uh, you know, important to day-to-day life. Then you look at the ones who uh, really are really dependent, and that's even more of a heartbreak. It's just ridiculous. But one of the things that occurred to me today was, you know, there's that phrase that uh, – Politics makes strange bedfellows. Uh, who would have thought that all the Democrats would support something that Kevin McCarthy came up with? I thought that was kind of a shocker this week, but nothing is surprising anymore. Yeah, um, Tim, uh, one thing I did notice that was kind of ironic was they were talking about, like, if the government did shut down, because I think people were really thought that there would be another another government shutdown at this time, um, in October, not late November. Um, and so they were kind of telling factoids, and one of them is that the congressional staff would not get paid during a shutdown, but congressmen and senators would. That seems like that would be a very popular thing for someone to run on and try to pass for the, with the American people, not necessarily with some of the members there, but to say, look, if we're going to have a shutdown, 
we're in the same boat as all of these other government workers. Isn't that just good government? Um, yes. <laughs> I mean, I don't, uh, uh, you know, it's in the Constitution that members of Congress get paid. Now, they should change that, but but they they've never they've never done it. Of course, I think they ought to have some skin in the game myself. Yeah. See, they don't they don't pay yeah. any penalty, no matter what they do. They're going to get theirs. Uh, they're quote essential workers, no matter if they're. Uh, up there in session, or if they're sitting at home, uh, which I, they'd be doing during the shutdown. So, yes. Yeah, and that may be part of the, you know, once again, the Constitution. Um, I'm not so sure the framers ever really meant for the Constitution to be functioning so closely to what they wrote in 17. 91, I believe, or maybe it was the 1780s. You know, it's older. It's it's a newer than the Declaration. Um, I think they figured that it would evolve more than it has, but they were wrote it probably when a time when there were no congressional staffers. There were probably very very few government employees, and so therefore they probably wrote it in. I would get paid during this period. They probably didn't foresee. Um, the scope of government like we would have in a much more complex society like we have in 2023. And so that's just one more place where the Constitution was insufficient for the future in some areas. But um, let's kind of talk about the next thing here. So we have this 45-day period. Tim, uh, since I gave you that very narrow question, I'll give you the next one first. Where do you think we go from here? Do you think we in this 45-day period, get on it and, and make a real plan? Or are we no. just, you know, once again, kicking the can down the road, we face this same dilemma in about 40-some-odd days? Well, the first thing that's going to happen is uh, what's Gates going to do this week? We we may degenerate into a, a wide-open floor fight and not even be talking about what we're talking about now, because obviously in 45 days you want to have a Speaker of the House sitting there when you're trying to do appropriations. Uh, and, 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 and who knows what's, what's going to happen with that. Um, because, I mean, you know, just this morning the Speaker of the House said if somebody wants to make a, a motion against me, bring it on. Um, I, I, I wish they were thinking more about appropriations because, see, it in, in this 45-day stopgap measure, they cut out Ukraine spending. And Michael Bennett over in the Senate, you know, was about to – try his best to stop the whole process because he was so angry about that. McConnell and Schumer promised him no in the next in in the next budget, the one year budget that we do, Ukraine funding in a few weeks is gonna be restored. Well then over in the House you got all that bunch that's saying, uh uh-uh, uh, that's not gonna happen. Um <laughs> it, I, I I don't uh, I I I don't I don't know where this is going to go. But you got 21 hardliners that 
that that are ready to derail it, which means that the speaker has got to have Democrats, whoever the speaker is, has got to have Democrats to pass the thing. And it's, it's, it's going to have to be a moderate, middle-of-the-road type budget, or they're not going to vote for it, and the speaker is not going to have enough votes because he only has 222 uh, members in his caucus. That's four to spare and, you know, take 21 away from four and, you know, you got negative math. So I don't know, guys. This, this, I, I, I'm, I'm very afraid. I, you know, I started watching this because we're a family show, Mess on Friday, as I told you, and what all has gone on since. And, and this uh, doing these budgets at, at at the last minute is becoming the norm, and I I I, I don't see I, I don't see this improving any at all. Yeah, just a quick statement on that. I mean, our state budgets are a year at a time, and I guess in Texas they do a two-year budget because they don't meet but once every two years, and so you can plan a yearly budget. And have this thing go, you know, far more than 45 days. Because then you're not able to, even if it's not contentious, if you're just voting on the budget every, you know, month and a half, you're spending valuable time. You but, be, David. You know, but, working on other legislation. But, David, you know, they made such a deal back in May. The, the Speaker and the President, they had a deal, and once... The speaker started talking to his caucus about it. Uh-uh, no deals, no deals with Democrats, no this, no that. And it just degenerated to where we're at now. So what do we do? Yeah, and that's because you have a group of folks in the Congress that just don't understand how things work or just think that the other side is just evil, and so therefore yeah. they're just not going to work with the other side, and that's a huge problem. Catherine, let's get into that question that, that Tim brought up. So Matt Gates has already said, I shared it with y'all, that he's going to bring a motion to vacate. He only needs just a handful of folks. I mean, pretty much himself and four or five more folks that can fit on one hand that will all will agree to this, and then we're basically without a speaker. Um, do you think this will go down this week? You know, it's really hard to tell what 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 the heck's going on. Like, what there is so ma- there are so many things that need attention, and they're focusing on these, you know, sort of uh, ridiculous and somewhat procedural things. While you know, we've got Ukraine, we've got you know, climate crisis, we've got. Uh, you know, a, a hundred things that really do need attention. So it it drives me crazy that they're focusing on, that they're wasting precious time on all this, especially because I think ultimately McCarthy will stay in as long as for, well, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think they're going to be successful in this ploy. But I guess they can just keep doing it. Like they can yep. fail and then do it again and fail and then do it again. Yep. And, and maybe at some point he'll just 
be like Boehner and just like say, fuck, screw it, I'm leaving. But I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I think that I guess McCarthy's biggest saving grace might be that there's no plan B. Um, you know, if they do get rid of him, what is plan B? They really don't have one. Um, because that hardliner caucus, there's a few of those, you know, what, roughly 20 members that are more to the middle of the caucus that represent districts that Joe Biden won, that, that represent districts that voted for that state's Democratic mayor, that state's Democratic senators. And they know if they go along with Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and Matt Gates, that they're going to have some real issues at the ballot box. And they already may because that first bill that didn't pass, that, that first budget that McCarthy put up, had 30% cuts across the board. And a lot of those folks voted for it. So now that will be used against them in a campaign. I mean, Tim, it's like the, the hardcore – 30-some-odd members or 20-some-odd members on the far right and the, the middle members that are, you know, really fighting for their electoral life, you got to kind of balance those needs, and there's no balance, really, is there? They are uh, – those 21 people, they want, their, they want one thing. They want, they want their way. They're, they're, they, they don't want to negotiate. They want their way, and if they – Want to shut the government down? So be it. Their their boy Trump wants them to do it anyway. Uh, but secondly, when we go to when when they do a motion to vacate, well, what exactly are the Democrats supposed to do right there? Are they supposed to? I don't know. Just just sit on the sidelines and watch? Are they supposed to come in and rescue the speaker by voting for him? And if they do that, keep having to vote for him? Or are they going to vote for Jeffries, who cannot possibly get 218 votes? What do Democrats do in this? Well, uh, Representative Alexandria Astacio-Cortez, she spoke up on this, and she said that she will vote to vacate. I mean, she'll she'll vote um, with those because it will be like she does it's a, vote, a no vote on McCarthy. And then I guess then there'll be a speaker's election. All the Democrats will vote for Jeffries. We'll be about like where we were. So really, if if McCarthy is going to cut a deal with Democrats, he has to really cut a deal with Democrats. And then he has to move really far over to the middle of the political spectrum and give away I don't know what to get the support of Democrats. Catherine, that doesn't really seem to be in his DNA, does it? No, it does not seem to be in his DNA. And it certainly isn't a ticket for re-election. Uh, and, yeah. Yeah, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how that would be. Dave, yeah, man, what, what kind of deal could he cut? Tell us. Well, well, you know, he, he, he would cut a deal to remain speaker. He, he proved that back in January when he was cutting deals with Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates right. and you know, the the congressional pages and everybody else in the room that night. Here, here's but this the, will be the, the problem, though. If it. the Democrats do what uh, AOC said, but, you know, vote to vacate, uh, there's still not going to be a Democratic speaker. That's not going to yeah. happen. There, there's going to be a Republican speaker. And, you know, look around. 
it's going to be somebody worse, probably, than than McCarthy. Imagine that well, for I'm, a moment. You you couldn't get much uh, weaker and ineffectual. Well, let's go ahead and switch gears, and we are welcome. We are glad to welcome in one of our favorite and longtime guests from California, Sting, uh, Steve Stingizer. Welcome, Steve. Hey, everyone. How's it going? All right. All right. Well, we're glad to welcome you on, and I'm going to do it a little different. I'm going to pass the question directly to Catherine, and then I'm going to close things out with our educational talk. So, Catherine, I'm going to pass it right to you. Hey, Steve. How are you doing today? Are you looking forward to voting a million times in the next year? (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yeah, I think they're going to keep me busy out here for sure. But, yeah, may you live in interesting times. Isn't that what they say? Yeah. We wanted to just uh, talk to you about sort of the legacy of Dianne Feinstein and then, of course, into the political, uh, you know, ramifications of her death. And uh, just so what are you thinking about today as far as Dianne Feinstein? A number of things, Uh, one of which is that I cannot fathom the fact that her career effectively began, and I am not a young guy, at a time, you know, it's easy to retrofit what we see today and think it's the way it's always been, but the fact that her political career really ascended in the 1970s, when I first started teaching social studies, Back in the late 90s, one of the things I pointed out is that Congress was only 9% women. And she had already been a member in good standing at that point for almost a decade. It's just amazing to see and to ponder how much our political society has changed uh, since she joined it back in the 1970s locally in San Francisco. Uh, I know a lot of people on the left uh, felt a lot of grievances towards her in the last you know, decade or so. But as I was saying to uh, Eric Michael Garcia a little earlier this week, who is a a, a national uh, Capitol Hill writer, I I don't think her issues were so much ideological. I think, and and this is not to her credit nor to her detriment, it just is what it is, as they say. I think she just believed in a Senate that didn't exist anymore, a Senate that was built on bipartisan comedy and Comity, M-I-T-Y, let me be clear on that, right. not yeah. M-E-D-Y, yeah. um, and, and working in a, in a unified spirit. And I don't know that that Senate's been around for most of my adult life, but it's the Senate she came into, and it's the Senate I still very much think she believed in. And so I think she frustrated a lot of people on the progressive left because of that. But the other thing I think, and, and I just – I couldn't help but think it when I got the news – on Friday, I really wish some of these folks would understand that that they deserve a little bit of life to themselves. Yeah, I just I feel very bad that she never got to enjoy just being citizen Feinstein. Now, in fairness to her, maybe that's not what she ever wanted. But you know, she was ninety. Uh, I can assure you, I love teaching. I am so fired up when I go talk to those kids every day. You will not see me in a classroom at 90. On that, I can absolutely guarantee you. Uh, it's just, and, and we see Mitch McConnell sort of in the same vein. And I know a lot of people on my side of the political fence kind of like, not like, but 
enjoy ribbing what's going on there, but I feel nothing but sadness. It's like, why do you still feel like you need to be there? Go enjoy what time you have left with your family, grandkids if you have them, your spouse, your friends. It just, to me, oh, man, you know, losing your life on the job is tragic at any time, but when you're 90, my goodness. Um, she's yeah, a giant in California politics. The other that's, that's side all of that. The other side of that is that it's not like if she had had um, decided not to run again, say ten years ago, but just for just for you know just she would. It's not like she would have faded into the woodwork. She would have always been a, a leader, and uh, she would have been sort of a um, kingmaker, probably, and she could have mentored people and so. I think that's a little bit heartbreaking too, because that would have given her or any of us the time to spend with our family or travel or read a book or whatever, but also continue to to make a contribution. So I agree with you. I I, I found it very heartbreaking that um, that she that the whole thing was. It's just sad, like you said. So now we move into this crazy situation where so Gavin Governor Newsom now has to appoint a, what he's calling a caretaker for this seat but they will only be in that seat until the, for a brief time right because then there's going to be a, a special election and then there's going to be an election in twenty in November, right? Is that right? Do I have that right? I actually don't think there would be. I don't know, given where she passed, where the time frame is. I know if the gap is significant enough, we do hold an election because we did. That's actually that's how Diane Feinstein became a senator. She defeated John Seymour, who had been appointed to replace um, Pete Wilson when Pete Wilson became governor. By the way, total side note, I feel very good that I could not remember Pete Wilson's name. Nature is healing. Um, but, but in all seriousness, I think it would just go to – since we're within a year, I, I don't think it might just go to the next cycle. So whoever would serve would serve for a year. But where, where Gavin Newsom did himself no favors was right. announcing in advance he would appoint a female of color to the position, which is – there's nothing wrong with that. Don't get me, please don't get me wrong on that. But when one of the three most prominent candidates in the field is a female of color, now you're boxed in. Because you say you wanted to be a caretaker, but now, as of just today, the uh, head of the Congressional Black Caucus has come out and said, we believe it should be Barbara Lee. Yeah. And it was only as recent as three weeks ago that Gavin Newsom was saying on national interviews it wouldn't be fair to everyone else running to appoint someone who clearly has designs on the seat to hold that position. He was still holding on to the idea of a caretaker. But literally, guys, just before we came on air, I saw, I think it was Jake Sherman, uh, a Punchbowl tweet out that Newsom has now reneged on that and said that he will not put any prequalifications on the appointment, which has everybody buzzing that it might be Barbara Lee and yeah, if I'm Adam Schiff or I'm uh, Katie Porter, I'm fighting mad right about now because he, if he had said nothing and just – because you didn't 
you didn't know that this would be an eventuality. I mean, we knew Dianne Feinstein was in ill health, but, you know, you don't know that that's necessarily going to mean that there's going to be a vacancy. But even if there was, all he has to say is, I'll appoint a caretaker when the time comes. There's an election coming up. Dianne Feinstein had already agreed she would not be running, or already confirmed she would not be running. He could have saved himself a whole lot of headache. And now this situation in California is really uh, potentially incendiary because it's starting to look more and more like he may appoint one of the active candidates after saying he wouldn't because he boxed himself in a corner saying he'd appoint a woman of color and most of the prominent women of color in the state declined because they either one they're young they're young politicians that don't want to be caretakers they want to continue in whatever office they're in or two they're friends with Barbara Lee so why would they you know take that position and possibly you know compromise her potential so it, it's it's a bit of a mess it's entirely a mess of governor Newsom's making and I, I'm not I'm not a critic of his by just wrote I, I but this was one that he probably wishes he had back. Yeah, I agree. It was a it was a boneheaded decision uh, to announce that it it was it was definitely a mistake. And that's the kind of that's the kind of mistake that can follow you too. You know, it 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 seems like a minor thing, but to the voters of California, it may it may end up being very important. So um, so if he was to appoint a caretaker, are, what what are the names that are being if, – if he were to eliminate all the, you know, pre – all the, you know, rules, like what, it could be anybody. Who do you think would be in line? Well – the rumor before this came out today that he now has reneged on this idea that it has to be a caretaker was uh, Holly Mitchell, who is a L.A. County uh, supervisor, uh, who had been in the state legislature. She is a younger African-American female uh, politician, and she was – I think the only reason her name was getting mentioned a lot is she's the only one that didn't rather explicitly say no. Uh, it's not going to be, you know, Karen Bass just took the position of L.A. mayor. She's not going to do it. I'm sure if it had been a year earlier and she wasn't running for mayor, she might have been a really good choice, but she's out of the picture now. And a lot of the other prominent African-American female politicians in the state are going to defer to Barbara Lee. So he's kind of put himself in a corner here that now, after all this, especially given what we heard today, I'll be surprised if it's not Lee. Uh, but other names, Mitchell, I was trying to think if there are any kind of emeritus status politicos it could be, but uh, to be honest with you, none come to mind right away um, that that would want or take the position. So he's like I said, he's kind of put himself in the corner. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how he wriggles out of it. And from all reports, he doesn't have a lot of time to figure it out because the Senate Democrats have somewhat hinted that they want this to be settled by the end of this week. Of so course. it's not okay. like yeah, they don't want to leave yeah, they don't want to leave 50-49 for very long at all. So my guess is we'll hear something by midweek and based on what we're hearing today, I think Lee is the most likely person, which by the way does not mean that she becomes the favorite for next year. Uh there was just a poll released this week and it had her a very distant third 
to Adam Schiff, who, 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 who after being very close for most of the campaign thus far, had established a, a real lead, not a big lead, but a, but a lead of some size over Katie Porter. And Barbara Lee was down with the leading Republican candidate in single digits. Now, obviously, becoming the appointed incumbent, we would think, would boost her stock some, but she also has not raised very much money up to this point. That will also be easier if she's an incumbent. So it'll certainly yeah. give her a new life, but it does not it does not preclude it being a Adam Schiff versus Katie Porter runoff or one of those three Democrats if one of the Republicans can sneak in with 15 or 20 percent. Uh, it definitely would give her a boost she has not had to date, though, and that – like I said, if I was Katie Porter, if I was Adam Schiff, or on their, I was on their campaigns, uh, I would be really hopping mad right now at the governor for uh, kind of almost looking like, and I hate to put it this way, but almost looking like he got bullied into appointing Barbara Lee. Because yeah. it was clear when he talked about a caretaker, he was planning not to do that. But then Barbara Lee started, the, to her credit, to her political credit, she started the ball rolling a couple weeks ago by saying, well, if he's going to appoint a woman of color, it should be me. I'm the longest-serving female not named Maxine Waters, who wouldn't take it, I don't think. Uh, I'm one of the longest-serving Democrat, Democrats in the House. I'm already running for the seat. It should be me. And then the Congressional Black Caucus got in behind her, and now he's boxed, and there we have it. <laughs> well, it should be an interesting uh, week to see how this is resolved and uh, what kind of position it puts everyone in. So. Thanks for your insight. I'm going to pass it over to Tim. I know he's got a whole bunch of questions for you about other California politics. Thanks so much, okay. Steve. Yeah. Good oh, evening, Steve. Good evening, Steve. Thank you for being with us. Let me let me ask you one one uh, quick little question about the Senate race. Uh, are we pretty confident? You know, you know they do a jungle type primary. They throw everybody in the same pot, and the top two run it off. Are we pretty confident that the Republicans will be a total non-factor in the Senate race? Uh, well, one way or another, I think they'll be a non-factor. I, I think it is possible for one of the Republican candidates to sneak into the final two because hypothetical situation. If the three leading Democrats all run relatively evenly, say right around 20%, and there's a host of other Democrats and independents that will get their 1%, half a percent, what have you. If one of the Republican candidates can coalesce the Republican support, well, we know Republican support at worst in the state runs around 30%. They could mm-hmm. make the runoff. If they make the runoff, they are going to have no chance of winning. They've raised no money. The rumor had for the longest time, guys, and, and nothing has come of this yet, the rumor had been that Steve Garvey, the former first baseman for the L.A. Dodgers, uh-huh. who's in his 70s, been, uh-huh. been retired for quite some time right now, but, but, a, but a legendary figure in L.A. sports, was considering running as a Republican, and that was a hot rumor at the start of the summer. And then, and I, as a Dodger fan, I'll tell you, went to a lot of games where all of a sudden he was representing the alumni of the Dodgers, handing out awards to people and things like that. And I'm sitting in the stands going, ah. Oh, he's making himself visible. I've got a feeling. And then nothing happened. And then nothing happened. So I don't know if he's changed his mind. We have a fairly early filing deadline. So unless he's going to file right at the deadline. Now, in his case, I will say money won't be an object because he's a wealthy guy. But but that's not the way you win is to start running 11 months prior. So yeah. I think the Republicans, yeah. even if they get out of the jungle primary, 
I don't have a picture of them being too impactful. And I don't think national Republicans will throw a lot of money this way because, quite frankly, they've got better targets. Ohio and Montana and West Virginia and Arizona and Nevada. Uh, I, 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 look, after this week, I, it's easy to overestimate the intelligence of Republicans because they have had a boner of a week. But I don't think they'll be that dumb. Mm. Well, moving moving right along, uh, Donald Trump addressed the California Republicans on Friday. I, I listened to part of that on uh, television, and it certainly sounded, a, a, at least in that arena, like that was a very heavily pro-Trump crowd. Is the California GOP heavily pro-Trump? They are, and uh, I don't think any of the alternatives are presenting themselves as alternatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the end of the day, someone's got to run against him. And so far, mm-hmm. the only ones that have really done that have been Asa Hutchinson, which no disrespect to the former governor of Arkansas, but he's got about as much chance as Doug Burgum has. And if you're asking who Doug Burgum is, exactly. <laughs> and then um, – Governor of North Dakota, just in case anyone doesn't think I know, Governor of North Dakota, but again, uh, and Chris Christie, who isn't going to get the nomination either. So I think it's one of the – this primary has been one of the great examples of political failure because I do think that there is some yearning in the Republican Party just in the name of wanting to have an electable candidate for someone to present themselves as the alternative to Trump. No one wants to do it. No one wants to anger the MAGA crowd. It's almost as if uh, – I was just talking about this with a teaching colleague of mine. We had a long talk about it, and uh, he said something that I thought was interesting. It's almost as if they're just wait, they're praying and waiting for the legal process to do their dirty work for them. And mm-hmm. then when that moment hits, they can say, hey, I've been loyal to him all along. I've said we should investigate the investigators. I've said that he's innocent, but, well, golly, too bad now. Love me. MAGA nation. It almost feels that way, but but the California GOP has been kind of taken over by people on the fringe. There was an effort a couple years ago by actually uh, someone I know locally who was a former um, moderate Republican state representative to take the party uh, leadership, and it went nowhere because they weren't interested in moderate leadership, and so it is. It's very MAGA heavy. Uh, it was I, when you said you heard the speech on television. I was going to offer my condolences because, <laughs> wow, wow, yeah. that was something. Uh, yeah. Boy, I, when he when he made the was. comment that when he made the comment that oh, if this were if this were not rigged, I'd win this state easily. It made me <laughs> sit there and think it's possible he's been asleep since 1990, but uh, <laughs> it, it's just. I, I don't know. I, I've gotten to the point, you guys, in all honesty, that I'm convinced that these guys no longer, Trump and his, his ilk, they no longer care if their falsehoods are credible because they know either their flock, their marks, if you want to call them that, don't know and will never know, or they just simply don't care. Because mm-hmm. no one who knows anything about politics could hear that statement and go, oh, Absolutely. Either California is this crazy blue state that everyone's trying to leave, but no, not really. They really love me. It's just because it's rigged. Pick one. 
for the sake of consistency, pick one. Yeah. But so, uh, at the end of the day, they'll stick with Trump because there's no other alternative. Even if they weren't sort of ideologically going that direction anyway, which I suspect they are, there, there's no alternative. Yeah. So, so we let let's just say for the sake of argument that the California GOP is heavily pro-Trump and and just you know full full, full of Trump people. Now, all of a sudden, you got the Speaker of the House, who also is from California. You've seen his performance this week and, and in recent weeks. Uh, how's the state Republicans Party feeling about the Speaker out there? Boy, after the last couple of days, <laughs> I can't imagine they're too warm. I can't imagine they're too warm on him right now. You know, and, and a lot of the MAGA base isn't either. You know, it seems that Matt Gates speaks for the collective, which is unfortunate, speaks for the collective MAGA brain, and he is very loudly today saying he wants to bring up a motion to vacate. And I, I in a way, if I didn't, if I didn't detest Kevin McCarthy and didn't think he was one of the most craven politicians we've seen in my lifetime, I would almost feel bad for him because mm-hmm. that's, that's not even hurting cats. I, I cannot think of a creature on this earth <laughs> that it is like hurting, trying to hurt this particular Republican majority. What, what an abject disaster of a group it is that he's trying to keep happy. And he keeps um, this kind of – the kind of smile that people have when you know they're not really happy when he's being interviewed, like this is all part of the plan and you know, none of this is part of the plan. (laughs) I think that I don't think he'll be speaker. I can't speak to this term because I don't think a motion to vacate call. I heard just the tail end of you guys talking about it when I came on. And I think a lot of Democrats would love to leave him twisting in the wind, but by the same token, what are you insuring? A Steve mm-hmm. Scalise speakership, Dude. or God forbid, a well, Matt Gates speakership. I just shuddered when you said that. <laughs> so, right? One more. So, yeah. One more quick question. Oh, if you, if you have yes, another sir. point to make, go ahead. Oh, no, no, well, please the, go ahead. Okay. Uh, one more quick question about another subject, and then I'm going to send it to David because I know you guys have quite a bit to talk about. But I have got to know what is the angle. Uh, of 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 Governor Newsom agreeing to debate Governor DeSantis <laughs> on Fox News on November the thirtieth. Only thing I can think of is <laughs> you notice the pause on the pregnant pause I'm taking here, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I'm trying to think of one too. One. Gavin Newsom likes to be in the middle of things, and now that he knows it's highly unlikely he's going to be an active candidate in 2024, I think this is his way of staying in the middle of the picture. You could argue that it's a a, a bit of 11th dimensional trust trying to elevate DeSantis above the rest of the anti, or not anti-Trump, but the not-Trump Republican field. It could just be that he's arrogant enough to think that it'll make him look good. Um, I, I voted for the man several times, but Gavin Newsom likes himself some Gavin Newsom. And I think he thinks of himself as a national figure. And this is one way to do that. Um, I, I don't like it because you're not the president and you're not a presidential candidate. 
uh, I know for whatever reason, I'll, I'll give you this may be the closest thing to a sincere answer that would not make Governor Newsom look bad. It seems very clear to me that he really, really intensely dislikes Ron DeSantis, like mm-hmm. on a special level. And, and by the mm-hmm. way, the feeling is mutual. So mm-hmm. it may just be that he wants – he thinks he can embarrass DeSantis and he wants that opportunity. Maybe. Uh, that's the most amenable answer I can give because the rest of them don't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. Yeah, as, I, I, I tell you something. Steve, that's as good an answer as I've heard because I've been scratching my head about why anybody would want to go debate Ron DeSantis with Sean Hannity as the moderator. But with that, I'm going to – Well, that's the <laughs> That's the part, to be honest with you, that I understand the least. Uh, But then again, that's why I say Newsom is a confident person to a fault. Maybe he thinks that it won't be two-on-one. I don't know what would ever make him think that. But uh, if he thinks Sean Hannity is going to do him a solid, boy, I don't know about that. But we'll see. I I don't know that I'll be watching (laughs) because is that that (laughs) Monday night? Is Monday night football on? Uh, WWE Raw, I don't care. Yeah, that NASCAR race, I'll, I'll take anything. We'll, we'll, dog show. Yeah, well, dog show. With that, I'll send it to David. David. All right. Well, Steve, I would have loved to ask a bunch of California political questions too, but um, we know that you and I are both educators, and there's so many educational topics to talk about. The crazy thing is, I plan to have you on near the start of the school year, and. After next week, my school year is a quarter over, which is just bizarre to think about, but it's still pretty early in the year. Um, So several things have happened, and one uh, I want to talk to you about first is both um, Florida and now Oklahoma have approved PragerU videos as educational content, and that probably means they'll maybe even shift some funding their way. They'll produce more of their videos. And if you're not familiar with PragerU, I'll just go ahead and tell you they're not neutral educational material in the least. They're very conservative, loaded um, propaganda videos, um, to be honest about it. Steve, uh, what do you think of this move by Florida and now Oklahoma and seemingly more states down the line? I'm not surprised by it, but I'm kind of sickened by it. Uh, it Florida has been down this road before. Uh, all the way back in, I think it was about 2013 or 2014, there was an effort by the Florida State Board back then, which was Republican-dominated, to require viewings of Dinesh D'Souza films in high school classrooms. So I guess this is par for that particular course. But it's all part of this agenda to redefine particularly the social sciences and that's of course is my backyard i'm a high school social studies teacher i'm in the midst of getting my master's degree in american history and and it's 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 hard to watch that we are now going to very likely in the next five years have a segregated education system with a significant part of the country getting actual history and another part of it getting ideologically themed mythology where slavery wasn't all that bad and evidence to the contrary is the work of a woke mob or God knows what other, you know, if you uh, did a drinking game, I happen to not be a drinker, 
But if you happen to be a, do a drinking game to Republican state superintendents using the word woke, uh, you'd have had cirrhosis by now, in all certainty. Uh, it's so transparent what they're doing, but Ryan Walters, who's the uh, superintendent of public ed in Oklahoma and is a rabid, young, 30, I think he's in his 30s still, rabidly right wing. He, he, he kind of caught on to the Ron DeSantis anti-woke train and decided to make that his ticket to undoubtedly running for governor someday, which he's young enough to do. Uh, I mean, what, what's his background in education? To my knowledge, he doesn't really have one. He came out of, I looked it up before he came on, he came out of an obscure college in Oakland, excuse me, in Arkansas, which out of 450 public colleges ranked by U.S. reports was a whopping, I think, 302. Uh, I don't know that he's ever spent minute one in a classroom. Uh, it's just, it, it's, it's, it's what we've seen really in the last decade of trying to work the refs to rewrite history in a way that fits an extremist ideology. And it's done by people who have no background in history to speak of. Um, you look at the Florida move, the, the one person they picked to lead it, they go, oh, this is a, a esteemed history professor who has not taught in about 30 years and really for the last 30 years has made his living on the, on the uh, you know, the going and getting money to talk at conferences and, uh, and party conventions, spewing the party line. That's, that's who that guy is. But he's even more qualified than the other person whose only educational experience apparently is putting up billboards. Uh, and plus, there's the usual array of dentists and, uh, and parents who, with no background in history, telling us what the history standard should be. Can you tell I'm a little frustrated by this? <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and by uh, the but, way, uh, you're talking about the, the whole, you know, minimizing the impact of slavery. Just this past week, Tim Scott, who is a – descendant of you know american slavery he actually you know said in that debate that um the great society was worse than slavery which is just i i'm sure that if you polled african americans across the country that about mm, probably less than five percent would agree with that crazy statement um so you see it i, I was taking i was genuinely with somebody like tim scott that should know better i was genuinely sad when he said that to be honest with you because to me it was just, man, how far are you willing to debase yourself to be vice president? And let's be clear, that's what he's auditioning for. He has about as much chance of being the Republican nominee for president as I do. And I hate to break it to you, but I'm not a Republican. Uh, so the idea that he feels like he has to say things like that, there's no way he really believes that. No way he believes that. But he knows that that is – that is his uh, ticket to elevation, whatever that may look like, is to be the African-American politician that says things that white MAGA types are happy with. And it's, it's just sad yeah. is what it is. Yeah, I, I yearn to go back to the days of straight talk, not pandering to the lowest common denominator which is seemingly what we've been doing for about the last six years on the Republican side of the aisle. Well, let's try to get into another topic, and this one's a little different, and this is one I didn't even mention um, you know, uh, back when we booked, but uh, we know we need more educators in public life, in Congress, state legislatures, what have you. And Representative Jamal Bowman was a middle school principal, 
Um, you actually, I know, tweeted and on social media, talked about this, um, and we hadn't had a chance to talk about it, so let's talk about it now. He somehow pulled the fire alarm maybe to get through the door faster, maybe to try to stall some kind of vote. We just don't know. Um, but you and I know that fire drills are a big deal in the school environment, and the school administrator is the one that runs the things. Um, what implications do you think this will have for his career moving forward? You know, I think it will help him in his district, to be honest with you. But I think he gets two hours' detention from the principals, what I think. I think that's the going rate in our district. Um, no, in all seriousness, I – I think it's funny over the last day watching Republican after Republican step on rakes, demanding his expulsion from Congress because you can't interrupt an act of Congress. And these are all people who have endorsed Donald Trump saying that it's the, the disconnect is, uh, is intriguing to say the least. I, I honestly, this is one of those things where, One of the rare times where I will be equivocal between the parties because I can't stand the right demanding his expulsion, but I also can't demand – I can't quite abide by people going, well, clearly it was an honest mistake. No, he quite pulled it because he was, you know, either because he thought it would buy them time or because he was just ticked off. So what? So what? Let Let the House administration deal with it. He'll get a slap on the wrist almost certainly, which is what it probably merits, and let's get on with our lives. But justifying it or decrying it as the gravest act committed since, you know, old Preston Brooks caned the dude back in 1856, the dude being Sumner, I forgot the name for a second, uh, is ridiculous. I don't think anything will come of it. Like I said, I think House administration will review it and say, well, he did it, he shouldn't have done it. And what? Nothing all, you know, slap on the wrist of some description. Yeah, I, I do think it's probably when he gets mentioned um, from now on, he's going to be the guy that pulled the fire alarm. So he did hurt his reputation, and so therefore it was just just un, totally unforced error. Let's move on to one more topic because I think we've got time for one more, and that is, um, you know, Florida expanded their, um, you know, voucher program, and Typically, we think, well, that means that you can go to more schools, and some of them might not be schools, but they went to a whole nother level. They basically said, well, you know, what if you're in homeschool or virtual school and you need a paddle board or you need, um, you know, sports lessons, whatever? It just looked like it became this huge tax write-off program that anything you might have possibly wanted to buy for your kids can now just be written off in some way. And, of course, that money comes out of the uh, Florida education budget as well. What are your thoughts on this? I think that at the end of the day, I would hope, although I I don't harbor a lot of hope for this, I would hope this would just show what ridiculousness voucher programs are in general. Uh, Because to say that, oh, well, you're homeschooled, and so – you needed to take this field trip to, you know, go to Disney World or whatever they are, the theme park, or so you could study physics or, you know, all, all the lame excuses we've seen. It, it, it's why would anybody be surprised that when you give people this much leeway, just because you hate a particular part 
of the public budget so much that you write a law so vague that people abuse the living heck out of it, I would think, I would love to think that people would kind of wake up and see that maybe this isn't the right path to go from a policy standpoint. But being in the states that it's being employed, and I, I don't harbor a lot of hope to that, but just the idea that homeschooling is eligible for vouchers to begin with, to me, defies the whole value of that system. Homeschooling is absolutely a choice. Now, you can make the argument that being in a particular public school district, that, you know, by, by where you live, is something that's out of your control, so being able to go to a private school should be eligible through a voucher program. That's a defensible argument. It's not one I share or agree with, but that's at least a defensible argument. But the argument that I'm in a junk having my kid go to school altogether and homeschool them at home and pocket the money uh, is is absolutely indefensible. But given the way that the state of Florida approaches public education, I'm not terribly surprised because it is the laboratory for really bad ideas in education. Yes. Well, uh, well there's so much we didn't get to tonight, uh, both education, California politics. We're going to have to have you on again, especially when this Senate appointment clears itself up and we, we see if we have, what, kind, what kind of race we may even have. Um, but we've enjoyed having you so much on tonight, Steve. Leave our listeners where they can read you, be it on actual websites or social media, just wherever our listeners can find you. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. I refuse to use the other name. Forget, forget that guy. Uh, <laughs> at Steve, S-T-E-V-E, Singizer, uh, S-I-N-G-I-S-E-R. And you can also find me on election nights at Daily Co's Elections. Uh, being one of the many putting together our election night coverage. Yes. Well, thanks again for coming on the show tonight, Steve. Thanks, Steve. Anytime. Thank guys. you, Appreciate sir. Appreciate you guys. Yes, sir. Yes. And um, tonight, guys, it's pretty close to the bottom of the hour. I don't think we can get to what we had planned as our final topic, um, which was Alabama's congressional maps, where um, one of uh, a pretty key vote. Uh, for Kevin McCarthy, uh, Barry Moore may be, um, you know, going by the wayside if those maps do indeed hold. Um, but we will uh, probably get to discuss that in the future. And then next week, our guests from the University of Oklahoma and really all over the country where J.J. has lived, J.J. Ames will be coming on the show as our guest for about the third time next week. But until then, it's been the Cudsey Vine. Good night, Good night guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest...